Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dudes. In June, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt all cut diplomatic and economic ties with Qatar, the tiny peninsular nation in the Persian Gulf. It's a small country, but also home to the forward operating base of U.S. Central Command. Why did this happen? What are the implications? Where is the crisis headed, and what is the Trump administration's part in all of this? To answer these questions, I'm joined in the studio today by Nader Kabani, the Director of Research at the Brookings Doha Center and a Senior Fellow in Global Economy and Development at Brookings. He's an expert on Middle East development and labor markets in the Middle East. You can get the latest show information by following the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. Stay tuned in this episode for another installment of Ask an Expert, a chance for you, the listener, to ask a question for a Brookings expert to answer. And now on with the interview. Nader, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I briefly mentioned what's happening in Qatar, but that's hardly a summation. Can you summarize, if you will, the situation with respect to Qatar and the other Gulf states and the states in the region? So basically in early June, the three Gulf countries of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, together with Egypt, severed diplomatic ties with Qatar. For the Gulf countries, that also included the blockade, air, sea, and land, in the sense of severing routes that went through those countries or those countries' waters and, and airspace. They also recalled their citizens from Qatar and told them they had 14 days to leave and essentially then uh, prevented Qatari citizens or residents in Qatar from visiting their cities and their countries. After that, that was followed a bit by kind of pressures on businesses to kind of not invest in Qatar or sever ties with Qatar, not as formally. A lot of this was informal. So essentially what you had was a situation where these countries were kind of trying to form a blockade to some extent against their neighbor. And just to situate ourselves geographically, Qatar is sort of a thumb-shaped peninsula that juts off the Arabian Peninsula into the Persian Gulf. It's very small, and for an airplane to fly in and out of that space, basically would have to go over the Arabian Peninsula or go all the way around it. So this is a pretty significant economic problem for such a small country located where it is. Absolutely. So it's a peninsula, and it's land borders with Saudi Arabia. So when Saudi Arabia basically cut off land access... It disrupted a lot of trade coming over land. A lot of the goods and services coming into Qatar would either go through Saudi Arabia or come in through Jabal Ali in Dubai and then go over land through Saudi Arabia into Qatar. The airspace itself, as you mentioned, its neighbors basically have a lot of the airspace around it. And it basically forces Qatari airlines to go through kind of a narrow corridor that essentially leads towards Iran. Mm. And then from there, they can go to Europe, Asia. Now... In fact, what has happened is that to a large extent, airspace became a little bit disrupted and they had to kind of manage their flow of the airplanes. But it only added about 20 minutes, let's say, to flights going to Europe or to Asia. The main disruption was to Africa because then they'd have to go a long way around Saudi Arabia to get there. Same thing with the flows of goods and services. So the main access was over land, and Qatar very quickly developed alternative routes. So goods started coming in through Oman, then to Qatar via sea, and to fly in goods from other countries such as Turkey. There was a significant disruption, shall we say, uh, during the first month or two, and quickly Qatar shifted to alternative routes at a higher cost, of course, and disruption. But it so far has managed the situation relatively well. Now, you are the director of research for the Brookings Doha Center. So you are based in Doha. Have you personally felt any of the effects of the blockade? 
Well, it was a surprise to everyone there. I think it may not have been a surprise that there was an ongoing conflict. You might have seen a kind of recurrence of a diplomatic standoff that took place in 2014. But I don't know anyone who expected this kind of level of escalation in conflict in terms of severing both political ties but also economic and social ties. I mean, these are Gulf countries and there's a lot of intermarriage. There's a lot of people from Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE and Bahrain who live in Qatar and vice versa. So this was very disruptive. And that was a bit of a surprise. And initially in the first week, travel was disrupted. The goods in the market, people were rushing to buy goods and stock up on basics. And within two or three weeks, things have kind of gone back to kind of normal, normal in the sense of daily life continues, everyone goes to work, they find what they need. Things are more expensive, it's slightly more difficult to get to where you want to go. If you want to go to Dubai, you have to kind of fly through Oman or Kuwait and hope they don't realize you're a resident in Qatar. But other than that, things have become kind of more or less normal within the context of what's happening. So why did this happen? Why did Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt take this action against their neighbor? Qatar has for a long time pursued a slightly independent foreign policy. And so the countries of the Gulf have worked together significantly. And when you compare it to other countries in the Arab world, the Gulf Cooperation Council was, you know, a body that was able to kind of coordinate economic and to some extent foreign policy issues quite well. Qatar and to some extent Oman and Kuwait also kind of pursued, you know, their independent foreign policies to some extent. I think things began to come to a head during the Arab Spring, let's say, when uh, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates essentially cut off their relationships with the Muslim Brotherhood. And they labeled them a terrorist organization, even though they were more of a political Islamist group. And Qatar continued to support this group. Um, This is a group based largely in Egypt? It started off in Egypt, but it has branches all over the Arab region. And they normally pursue political agenda. So they kind of work through elections, and they won the elections in Egypt. And President Morsi was a Muslim Brotherhood figure. And actually, Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states had supported them up until, let's say, 2012, 2013. There was a falling out, and, and Qatar continued to do this. So that was one aspect. Another is that Qatar had a highly watched channel, Jazeera, and basically invited opposition figures that maybe their Gulf neighbors wouldn't have liked to have seen appear on TV and radio shows to their talk shows. And it kept up this kind of uh, general perception of having a strongly independent foreign policy even at that stage. So the diplomatic standoff that took place in 2014 lasted about nine months. And those involved recalling ambassadors. And then there was kind of a, a negotiated settlement to that. But Qatar continued, I think, to support the Muslim Brotherhood. Even though they closed down Al Jazeera Egypt and reduced their overall support, it continued to support the Brotherhood. And I think the neighbors decided that Qatar hadn't gone far enough, essentially, towards meeting their demands of 2014. And this was kind of a reckoning, shall we say, in terms of, no, we want these things to happen. Now, I should tell listeners that nearly everything I've learned about the Muslim Brotherhood comes from Shadi Hamid, Mm -hmm. our colleague in foreign policy, and he's been on this show a number of times. So I encourage listeners to seek out those episodes in which he talks about the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamism. So moving up to 2017, we know that President Trump went to Saudi Arabia during a multi-nation tour in May. And then this event, breaking of diplomatic ties with Qatar, happened right after that. So a lot of people are saying, well, somehow President Trump or the Trump administration gave Saudi Arabia and the others kind of the green light to do this. But it's interesting that the origins of this go way back. So how much should we look at President Trump's involvement with Saudi Arabia, his relationship with Saudi Arabia, in terms of the diplomatic and economic break that we see today? 
Oh, I think it was a very important factor. And I think it was an important factor in terms of the scale of the break rather than the break itself. I think you know, something was going to happen. So before President Trump visited Saudi Arabia and the region, there was a lot of, let's say, activity. So high-level officials from the United Arab Emirates uh, meeting with the Trump administration and kind of priming them shall we say, about Qatar's alleged involvement in terrorism. There was op-ed pieces that appeared in newspapers. There was a, an event organized by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which was essentially you know, a Qatar bashing event in D.C. So there was a lot of preparation that went into priming Trump and his, let's say, close circle of advisors you know, and, and getting them ready for the idea that you know, oh, Qatar is, is the key element in terms of supporting terrorism. I think what happened then was they got, I don't know if it's a green light, but let's say a nod. They understood that Trump, you know, okay, got behind their narrative. And you saw that through his initial tweets. The problem is that that didn't quite square with reality. I mean, if you look at the groups Qatar has been supporting, it's more the political Islamists, more the moderate organizations that are trying to go through democratic processes to gain power which was seen as a threat in, let's say, authoritarian circles or monarchies or everything else. So this was a dispute in terms of who to support within the GCC. And Trump administration officials down at the Department of State or Defense understood this. You know, Qatar was an ally. It's an ally in terms of finding ways of reducing financial support flowing to terrorists. It's been an ally in terms of, as you said earlier, hosting the largest American forward base in the region. And so you saw this disconnect immediately in the context of the response of the administration or the wider administration versus Trump himself. But if you take it from the perspective of Qatar's neighbors, I mean, what they got was a nod from the president. And in their context, you know, when the king nods or says something or the sheikh nods, everyone else kind of falls into line. That didn't quite happen in the context of the U.S. And I think... They had an idea of a game plan, and that was immediately disrupted. I mean, I think uh, Trump's nod, shall we say, encouraged them to basically demand a lot. But the problem is that the rest of the administration and the rest of the world, by and large, didn't follow. They're like, oh, wait a minute, this is an internal conflict in the GCC, and this really isn't about uh, terrorism. It's about deciding which groups you want to support and the kind of uh, media attention that you pay to them and issues between you. And so that's kind of disrupted the game plan, I think in terms of isolating Qatar internationally. So can you broaden the lens somewhat to the wider region and talk about where Qatar is now in relationship to its neighbors, say Iran, which was directly across the Persian Gulf from it, not very far away, with, you mentioned Turkey, is coming in with some support. Talk about where Qatar is situated now in the wider region. So in the context of the region, like you mentioned, Turkey has been very supportive of Qatar and immediately started kind of helping get food supplies and, and other essentials to Qatar via air routes. Iran has also said they're willing to help out to the extent possible. And over the long term, um, Iran is actually very, very close by. I mean, there's a short distance between them over water. As Qatar develops alternative trade routes and they need, you know, more and more basic commodities to help with their construction or meet their food needs, Iran is a logical source for these. One of the interests of its neighbors was that Qatar reduce its ties with Iran. And Qatar and Iran shared this huge natural gas field. And so there's cooperation between them. From the beginning, there has to be because there's mutual interest there. But this is going to have possibly the unintended consequence of actually moving Qatar closer to Iran in terms of economic ties. Other countries in the region have been, I would say, neutral slash supportive. 
that includes Oman and the wider sphere, like you know, Italy now has a deal. The U.S. has been working with Qatar closely in terms of furthering its ability to track financing or financial flows to suspect and extreme groups. And so Qatar has been keen to kind of develop those ties even further during the crisis and, and make sure that it's seen as a good global citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, what it's been trying to do. Yeah, I just read an article that said that Qatar and Italy have inked a deal for Qatar to buy some Navy ships mm-hmm. from Italy. So let's look at the economy there. You mentioned that Qatar shares a large natural gas field with Iran. I was surprised to learn that Qatar is the world's largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. I did not know that. Yes, it's the largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. Australia, I think, was going to surpass it within a couple of years, but then Qatar just announced not too long ago that it was going to increase its production of liquefied natural gas, and so it's going to maintain its global lead at least for a few more years. And now it's time for Ask an Expert. Abi Agarwal wrote to us with this question. My name is Abi Agarwal, and I am a sophomore and aspiring economist residing in Massachusetts. As I talk with some experienced neoliberal economists, I find that they generally support 0% corporate income tax substituted with a more progressive income tax. Is 0% corporate income tax really a solution to our problems, and will it bring economic prosperity as its proponents claim it will? I asked senior fellow David Wessel, a regular contributor to this podcast, to tackle your question. Thanks for the question. I'm David Wessel. I'm director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy here at Brookings. This issue has a long history. In the 1990s, for instance, there was a flurry of interest in what was known as integrating the corporate and individual tax systems. The basic premise was that the tax system would be more efficient and the economy would benefit if we just tax business profits once at the level of the owners, the shareholders. That idea didn't go anywhere. There are a couple of big problems. One, of course, is that getting a political consensus to pursue any big change in the way the tax code works is enormously difficult. There are always winners and losers, and the losers always lobby harder, and one person's loophole is another person's well-justified incentive. There's a reason that despite all the widespread frustration with the tax code, we haven't seen a major reform since 1986, which was probably before you were born. With regard to your specific proposal, a 0% corporate tax and put it all through the individual income tax, there's another problem. A lot of the shares in American companies are owned by institutions that don't pay taxes, big university endowments, pension plans, foreigners. Steve Rosenthal and Lydia Austin at the Tax Policy Center estimate that only 25% of corporate shares are in the hands of taxable accounts. That's down from 80% in 1965. So offsetting the revenue loss from wiping out the tax on corporate profits would be more complicated than simply adding those profits to the taxable income of individuals. It probably would require imposing some sort of a consumption or value-added tax or a carbon tax. Now, if we could surmount both the political and the revenue obstacles to your idea, would it solve all our problems and bring economic prosperity? I doubt it. Debates over taxes, in my opinion, tend to overstate the role of taxes in determining how fast the economy grows. Taxes are an important policy tool, and a more efficient tax code would push the economy in the right direction. But tax reform, no matter what it is, is not a cure-all for all that ails the U.S. economy today. 
So there you go. Thanks, David. And thanks, Avi. And keep a lookout in the mail for a Brookings coffee mug. You wrote in a piece that's now published on the Brookings website, Qatar will have little choice but to enhance trade and integration with other countries, including Iran. That seems like it would seriously undermine U.S. foreign policy objectives in the region. I think this crisis in the Gulf will affect U.S. foreign policy and U.S. interests significantly. One is in terms of Iran containment. I mean, what you're seeing right now is it's natural. I mean, Qatar is looking for allies close to it and at least improving economic ties to make sure that it covers what it needs. And Iran, as we mentioned, is the logical source of raw material for it and goods and services. It's been very careful to manage that relationship in the context of the crisis. But over time, if it's being blockaded by its southern neighbor completely over land, and then it's going to turn to other neighbors. Another one that's very important is essentially the the real issue of, of terrorism. The United States, right now with ISIS basically in retreat in terms of its land holdings and ability to defend kind of an area under its control, it's likely to start moving more and more into targeting via networks, so the threat of international terrorism is actually increasing. And this is the, you know, terrorism involving, you know, ISIS, you know, organizations whose objective is to disrupt relations between the West and the Muslim world. The strategy is quite simple, you know, do a terrorist activity, get Western countries or secular governments to react negatively to Muslim populations in general, and then feed resentment in the Muslim populations and gain recruits that way. That's the game plan. What's happening in the Gulf is a major distraction from that. The word terrorist, supporting of terrorism is being floated around, but in fact, okay, so, you know, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and the UAE have designated the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. No other European country or the U.S. has. They see it as a political organization. And so trying to get the other countries to focus on the Muslim Brotherhood distracts from where the threat really is coming from. And I think that's going to be a major issue. And you see this. You see the State Department moving very quickly to try to figure out ways of resolving this because I think for them this is the top priority. I read somewhere that Saudi Arabia and the other countries have also accused Qatar of supporting some of the opposition groups in Syria opposed Mm -hmm. to the regime of Assad. And then some of those groups are seen by some people as... I don't know, terrorist adjacent or, you know, unsavory kinds of groups that we wouldn't want to support, or maybe they funnel some of that money, like al-Nusra, to to ISIS. Is there merit in that perspective? The Gulf countries, including Saudi Arabia and Qatar, support opposition groups in Syria and armed opposition groups. That includes al-Nusra Front, Harsham, others. What's interesting here is, as far as I know, and Saudi Arabia does too. And in fact, I think that if you look at who's supporting whom, I mean... Saudi Arabia tends to support the groups that had a past affiliation with al-Qaeda more than Qatar does. Qatar is supporting more slightly the secular Islamist, but more moderate ones. So it's like throwing this accusation by the Gulf countries is a bit ironic. Now, from the American point of view, there is an interest in ensuring that financial support to these groups does not find its way to other groups that are basically, you know, like ISIS and and al-Qaeda. And the thing for America is then to work closely with the Saudis, the Maratis, the Qataris to ensure that these financial flows do not find its way to these groups. Let's switch over to the economic consequences now, the costs economically. You said that the blockade that Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, Egypt have imposed on Qatar will be harmful to them. 
we know the cost to Qatar, but how is it harmful to those countries to impose an economic blockade on a very small country? Well, I think there's two parts to this. The first one is it is still a market. You know, Qatar, if there's a blockade, will find alternative routes at higher expense possibly or have to develop its internal capacity to produce the goods and services it wants. They flew in a 1,000 cows, for example, to, so they can increase the production of their milk rather than import from Saudi Arabia. So the neighboring countries, when you lose a market, even a small market, it's difficult. Where's the alternative? Where's the other market that you're going to meet? Once the market's gone, it's difficult then to find other sources for your goods and services. But that's a small part of the equation. The bigger part is kind of what's happening to the brand in the region. And I think this especially affects places like Dubai. So Saudi Arabia has been trying to attract foreign direct investment and financial organizations to come and work there. Dubai has already done this. It bills itself as essentially this relatively free-flowing commercial hub. You know, you come, you invest, you open businesses, you can do business across the region. And to some extent, they're kind of forced to go along with this game plan of you know, Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia and ISIL like Qatar. Now, you're a foreign company and you want to potentially open a, uh, an office in the region that serves the region. You're now looking very carefully at Saudi Arabia and Dubai as potential sources. One is Qatar because you can't serve the entire region. You have to also open office in Qatar. The second, if these countries are so willing to abandon their, let's say, commitment to these international organizations, come open, you're free to do things as long as you stay out of politics, you know, what's to prevent them in the future from doing something else? They get into a conflict with Oman. Or, or something else, or they come up with some regulation or law that then restricts the operations of these companies. So I think the long-term investment in these countries has taken a hit in terms of you know these international organizations thinking about where they want to operate and, and open it. So a good friend of mine is the regional head of an international company based in Beirut, and his headquarters have been saying, you know, let's move to Dubai. You know, I think he is in a much stronger bargaining position saying now that he wants to keep it in Beirut because of what you see happening now. Let's look ahead to policy recommendations, solutions for what's going on there. What are your recommendations for what the GCC and other states that are boycotting Qatar should be doing? And what should Qatar be doing in return to help solve the situation? I think both sides can do a lot. I think Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, spearheaded by Abu Dhabi in this context. You have Kuwait who that's been trying to mediate, another country in the GCC, and Oman that has been staying out of it. For these three countries, I think... They had a game plan, and the game plan was not that this would drag out, that, you know, there'll be a quick escalation to the point where they'll get the U.S. and other countries on board. Uh, Qatar would change its ways and move towards a little bit what they want, and things will be over. That hasn't happened. So the question is, what do you do? And right now it looks like they want to continue down this road a bit. This is at a very high cost, again, social, economic, and political. I think it's in everyone's interest, including the U.S., to find a way of coming to some sort of agreement and a face-saving agreement or whatever you want. But still, you know, they're not going to get everything they want out of Qatar. I saw that there was a list of 13 demands that they made of Qatar. Yeah. And so there's a list of 13 demands. It was reduced to like six more general demands. There's now some room for, for discussion and negotiation. But they have to think about, okay, how do you kind of backtrack from the relatively you know, from this big list of, that Qatar wasn't going to really accept, given that things haven't quite worked out the way they want. In a way, that's face-saving and that they can identify really what they want. What is it that you really want? And, and that's what you negotiate. So step one, what do you want? And then find a way of discussing it with Qatar and, and getting as best you can a deal. I, I think that's, that's kind of where they have to do. And, but they have to realize that this is costly to them. 
I mean, if you think about it, what is the issue? The issue is you support groups we don't like. You're weighing that against severing economic ties, uh, affecting social fabrics and relationships that are very difficult to mend when, you know, you sever them this way and potentially, you know, moving a core country in your, um, let's say, sphere of friendship and influence to Iran. So the cost is very high. The question is, what are you getting out of it? And I think they need to weigh these very carefully. Do you think there's a risk of a military conflict? At this point, it doesn't seem like it. At this point, everyone has been kind of going much more around the economic side of things. And I think Qatar has shown itself to be fairly stable. There's a lot of ground-level support for the emir. You know, the Qataris have come out and forced saying they perceive this as an intrusion on their sovereignty and on their independence. And there's a lot of, lot of popular support right now for the government's position. It's difficult to imagine an armed conflict without pretext, and there really isn't a pretext right now. Qatar can do a lot, and it has been doing something. So it's been working more closely with the U.S. government, the Department of State, and the Treasury, even to embed people from the U.S. government to monitor more closely financial transactions with the goal of reducing financial flows to terrorism. That's great. What it could do also, I mean, it can look at some of the issues that were raised by its neighbors, let's say Al Jazeera. If you look at Al Jazeera in English and Arabic, they're relatively different channels. Al Jazeera English provides reasonably well-edited, unbiased coverage. Al Jazeera Arabic has some problems. They can improve the editorial process within the context of Al Jazeera Arabic, introduce a certain level of consistency and professionalism in terms of a media organization, and and move to improve that aspect. It can develop consistent rules about who it lets into its country and under what conditions. So if, for example, if the law is very clear that, you know, anybody, and it's still, it hasn't changed its policy towards people coming in from Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, you know, you can come into Qatar. It's just that those countries are preventing their citizens from visiting Qatar. And it says, if you can come into Qatar, you can own land, you can do what you want. When a neighbor says, we don't want this person coming into your country and giving an opposition figure dissonant, Qatar can say, no, we have laws that kind of allow anybody to come in. And they can point to that. So essentially, what it can do very much is ensuring that it improves how it does business and ensuring that it addresses the general concerns that were raised, but in a way that is both in terms of bilateral negotiations and in ways that is consistent with maintaining its sovereignty and independence. So it can do a lot. Now, you just mentioned the U.S. Department of State, the U.S. Treasury Department. Is there anything else U.S. government can do? And specifically, is there anything you think that the White House itself could be doing to help mediate the conflict? I mean, there's still a perception of a disconnect between President Trump and, let's say, the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State or Department of Defense and Department of State. I don't know if it's possible to bring the president on board and get him to come out and very clearly say that the priority for the United States is, in fact, that the countries involved in the conflict resolve this as quickly as possible, and the U.S. isn't going to take sides. I think that would be a very clear signal that everyone's on the same page. So I think that's one thing that can be done. Another thing is right now the Gulf Cooperation Council is at risk. This was an institution that was set up with the strong support of the British government and the American government as kind of an institution that can help kind of ensure dialogue between the Gulf states and cooperation, uh, economic, political. And the Arab region desperately needs those kinds of institutions that countries can turn to when there's a conflict. So one thing the U.S. can do is try to not just push for kind of a resolution to the conflict, but through the mechanisms that already exist, because right now it's at risk of becoming irrelevant or, or significantly weakened because of the crisis. 
Nader, I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise today. We will keep following your work and that of your colleagues to try to understand what's happening in this conflict and elsewhere in the region. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you inviting me on the show. You can learn more about Nader Kabani and the work of the Brookings Doha Center at brookings.edu slash Doha. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air, and I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Sam Dart, China Holmes, and Brian Harrington. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. 